like to go back in time and, and talk about, you know, you, when did you decide that acting was your thing? When did you want to become an actor? Uh, when did I want to become an actor? I got the first pangs of wanting to be an actor when I was probably about five years old at a family wedding and it was really boring and people were falling asleep at the best man's speech. And I, and I surreptitiously climbed on the table and shouted out, um, you're only here for the beer. And it brought the house down in the middle of a speech. And I thought, oh, this is quite fun actually getting on a stage, even if it's at a table at a wedding. And then I joined a drama group when I was younger and performed in musical theater shows and plays. And um, yeah, for the want of being good at anything else, that's really what I, what I decided to, to follow and do. Yeah. Was there anything else that you wanted to do and prior to that? Well, yeah, I mean, I was actually quite small as a boy and I, um, for a while I, I, I thought about being a jockey because I used to love riding horses and I love horses. And then the other thing that I thought about doing was being a, um, a barrister or an attorney, um, a trial attorney because uh, I like the idea of making arguments on behalf of people. Um, but uh, now I fell into acting. I think, you know, there's a great philosopher called Alan Watts, English philosopher, who said, find a job in which you can get paid to play, um, and then you've cracked it. And if you, you know, acting and being an artist, if you can get paid to play, uh, or a sports person, whatever it is that you're playing at, or you feel like there's a sense of curiosity and wonder and you're motivated and you're enlightened to, to kind of learn more and do more in that sphere or sp space, then um, you're living a good life. Yeah. Hey, I, I come from sports. So for me, it was always about, you know, you put the uniform on or you put on your, your training gear and you say, wow, this is what I get to do every day. Yeah, I, you know, that was that was probably the third. That was my passion as a kid. I was like I was the captain of all the sports teams and sports and being on the on the sports pitch or the field or the court. That was really my salvation in terms of what saved me from um, uh, my upbringing, my family environment at home and um, leading a life of, uh, you know, um, uh, being on the streets and just being a naughty lad. And I loved sports. My, my favorite teacher, if anyone, no one's ever asked me my favorite teacher. And I usually don't answer who my favorite quote unquote anything is because there's so many favorites. But my PE teachers, my physical education teachers were so inspirational. Um, they were the, the right balance of discipline, risk reward, um, tough love, inspiration and enthusiasm and motivation. Um, I remember my first day at, at, at PE class, like it was yesterday, it was like, it was a school on stilts, we call it. So it was kind of set up high and had a good gym and all, we're all just waiting and walking to go up to the gym class. And, uh, and there was Mr. Williams and Mr. Christian. Mr. Christian was kind of this thin, you know, um, cerebral kind of guy. Mr. Mr. Williams was this kind of rotund, uh, Welsh rugby player, scruffy looking guy. And he was the really loud belching guy. He was like, what do you think you're doing? And we all just stopped. He's like, get back in line. And it was like, whoa, and we were just taught right from the off. You listen, you listen and then you learn. And um, the, the, my journey through sports uh, still to this day, it, it set me up in so many ways for um, success. And I was pretty successful at sports. I mean, I nearly became a professional soccer player and uh, nearly became a professional rugby player. And so sports is still, I don't have the time to watch as much as I'd like, but I still love, I mean, for me, football or soccer is still 
um, where it's at. And I have friends who play, you know, professionally in the, in the NFL and, um, that's an amazing sport, American football. And I mean, just some of the American sports are amazing. Um, yeah, I baseball, I'm not as, I'm not as like, I think you have to have a Bible of stats with baseball and it's really about being at the game and getting the hot dogs and the seventh inch stretch and singing the anthem and, um, all, all of that. It's like the American sport, isn't it? it totally. You know, much like, you know, football and, in you know, your homeland is, is so big. We love watching, uh, you know, on Amazon, you can watch a bunch of, you know, documentaries on, you know, soccer, football, and it's pretty cool. We watched one on Rooney a couple of weeks ago, and that was, you know, it's just nice to capture those, those stories. But again, there's so many lessons to be learned from sports. You said, hey, when I was growing up, I learned some lessons in sports that I still apply towards my success today. What, what, what are those lessons for you? Like, gosh, there's lo- I mean, there's loads of them, pra- you know, practicing, putting in the reps. I mean, I, even later on, I, you know, in late life, I I've done about 12, 15 triathlons for, to raise funds for children's hospital LA. And I remember doing my first one and how, cause I don't, I, I used to swim as a kid and I love swimming, but open water swimming, competitive swimming in a triathlon, when people are grabbing at your ankles and your goggles are coming off and getting fogged up. I never enjoyed that part of it. And then I had the, I was fortunate enough to work with the um, USA triathlon, Olympic triathlon coach. And I learned from him about technique, particularly with swimming. You know, I was doing 26 strokes per lap in the pool and he got me down to 12 or 13. Uh, and technique just made it so, but also putting in the, the, the hours and the grind before the race. I think my fourth or fifth race, I got a bit, arrogant and thought, you know what, I'm Mr. Superfit at 56 years old, 46 years old, and I can just do it without any practice and training. I suffered like, I still remember the suffering that I went through in that race. And, and then the following year with this, with this trainer, um, I, I literally halved the time in the triathlon. And that was all because of the practice that I put in. I think as well, I think back to uh, a rugby game when I was 12 years old, and um, a high tackle that I put in because I got so invested in being a monster and going after it. And uh, it was this kid who was twice the size of me. I used to play scrum half and and it was me against him. Uh, you know, I was the only, the last remaining back to, to save the try. And I remember my P, Mr. Mr. Christian, um, the PE teacher, taking me aside after the game. Uh, he actually substituted me right after that tackle. And didn't say anything. It was just like, you know, you're you're done. It's over. Uh, you're off. You're not you're not playing anymore. And um, how devastated I was in that moment. And I think that what that moment taught me was controlled discipline uh, and controlled anger and rage uh, in 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 the moment, um, and not to be not to go above the line, as I call it. Um, yeah, there's little, gosh, there's so many lessons with sport. Team play, how to be a team player, how to inspire. You know, I was a bit mouthy when I played on the, you know, I was the captain of most of the teams. So I was a bit mouthy, and particularly on the footy or the soccer pitch. And um, I would get on people, you know, and it was bad? no one worth Huh? Is that bad or is that good? I think, well, you know what? It can be good and it can be bad. I think, you know, part of, 
part of the, it's like the evolution of sports psychology in professional sports, you know, understanding, you know, some of the great managers, I don't think are necessarily the, the, the best tacticians. They are great tacticians as well as being sports psychologists and understanding the individual personality of a player and how to get the best out of a player. Some players are gregarious and arrogant and strut around and so self-confident. Some, some players, that's a facade for deeper insecurity. Some are quite shy and, and don't respond. Like I didn't respond well to uh, yelling and berating and screaming and kind of dragging me down. And cause I had a self-belief and self-confidence confidence that to me was just unshakable. I was a winner. I was going to win every time I stepped on the field. It was pity you cause you've already lost. You know, that was the belief. That was the mindset I had when I approached sports and, and many things in, in my life. Um, where, where did that originate? Where does that come from? That's for me, like in my work, I'm always fascinated with where that comes from. Well, I think, you know, some people might say it comes from inspiration and mentors and, um, you know, maybe this part of it was being being surrounded by, the neighborhood I lived quite close by was um, the Liverpool football club, uh, which is my, my, the team that I support. And I kind of went to see and played a little bit before when I was a kid, they, they they were brilliant and dominating in the late seventies and early eighties and seeing some of that success. But I think, you know, some people will say that it was a particular coach or it was a particular mentor. For me, it was from inside. And, and I had a burning desire to get out of my hometown. I had a burning desire to be noticed and be a winner and a champion. Um, and I had a burning desire that was driven by the Japanese have a word called koyashi. Okay. So it's when someone inspires you through negative reinforcement. Um, so anytime someone said to me, you can't do that, or you're not going to win internally, I would say to myself, oh yeah, just watch me. And I still have that today when people say, that's crazy. What a crazy idea. You can't do that. No, that's nonsense. You're never going to win. That's never going to happen. And I talk, I talk with people about the I cans rather than the I can'ts because there's so many times I hear people say, oh, I can't do that. And it could be something quite trivial, like you could be at a dinner party and there could be a piano and someone sings a song. Oh, come on, Jane sings a song. Oh, I can't, I can't sing. Well, you know what, you can sing. You don't have to sing right now, but don't tell yourself that you can't. So I think the inner, the inner monologue, the inner dialogue and the, the inner critic is really important to kind of get in touch with and get in that conversation with if it rears its ugly head. And you know, it's interesting you say that, you know, Derek Cheater, they just did a big documentary on him on ESPN. And one of the things he said is, I remember every person that told me that I couldn't do it. I know when it was said, I know what they were wearing, and I never forgot it. So yeah. it very similar, and it, and it inspired him to prove all of them wrong. Yeah, I, I, I could tell you the same. I mean, you the know, color you, of the head. Dissect that a little bit and say, well, you know, that's, that's not good. That's, you know, you may have some deep issues there. But at the same time, you know, I, I feel that like, you know, com competition is an important part of the spirit. Oh, I think we're all, I mean, I mean, look, maybe, maybe part of my competitive spirit came through uh, having an older brother. You uh, know? Yeah, I, th I would uh, think so, right? <laughs> huh? I would think that could be part of it. 
Yeah, and and I think you know we we all like to we all like to play. I mean, look, ga- gaming, playing games, whether it's video game or a board game or um, you know healthy, good, positive competition is is really good, especially for um, younger younger men, um, our younger generation of boys who I think have been um, massively let down recently over the last few years by the educational system and by all of the the ideology that's out there about um, safe spaces and, you know, young boys and young men have to take risks there. That's what, you know, it's the hunter gatherer. It's the, it's the, those rites of passage that need to be encouraged. I think there's a difference between the matriarch and the patriarch, mom and dad and mothering and fathering. I think mom's natural instinct is to pull child in close if it's boy or, or girl, but particularly, you know, a younger child and nurture. And are you okay? Is everything okay? Whereas the, the male, um, there's a male propensity to, to actually risk and reward. Get out there, son. We're gonna, you, you're going to take risks. Life is about risk and reward. You can be responsible with those risks. There's going to be danger. Uh, I'm going to learn along with you. And I think that's true of a good coach as well and a good manager of a sports team. Is um, You really get the sense through adversity that your coach or your manager is the leader and will have your back. How do we get back to that? You know, where, where you can actually push kids and champion kids, uh, you know, let's leave, you know, say the young boys, how do we get them to be more, uh, you know, like young men, as opposed to, you know, sometimes you see 25 year olds that are still living at home, uh, being coddled by their parents and not being pushed to go out and hunt. Well, you know, there's a great book by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianov called The Coddling of the American Mind. And I think there has been a lot of coddling and, and helicopter parenting. And we live in different times now. Um, and, you know, so, some of you know the evolution of, of the last couple of decades has been great. But in terms of your question, how do we do that? Well, I think it starts, you know, locally at school. I think you have to push back if... Um, you know, there's safe spaces and uh, feelings are being protected and words are offensive. No, they're not. I mean, look, nobody likes being bullied. I was, I was attacked three times my first, my first day of school. I didn't want to fight. I had to fight to defend myself, but I learned pretty quick that I couldn't get, you know, in the, in the gladiatorial arena that was at the end of the street, down the end of the school, in the cul-de-sac where all the kids would sit around, that I had to defend myself and I had to be, I had to be physical. And um, rough housing, I think, for boys is a particularly important part of um, adolescence and learning boundaries through rough housing as well. So I think, you know, we have to look our policies, our institutions, our educational systems, um, they've become so interwoven with a, well, I guess an intersectional mindset that's, that's about being politically correct, that we have to get away from that. We have to get more towards the individual rather than the group, um, and, uh, really focus on, um, on what was good about, our, you know, the days gone by history teaches us a lot, a lot bad, but also a lot of good. And, um, unless we're competitive, and we learn the value of losing. I mean, look, I talk about failing. I like to fail often because fail, F-A-I-L, is the first attempt in learning and thought is born of failure. It's quintessential essence when cognition sparks. So we need to keep failing uh, in order to learn, um, you know? How, how do you move yourself towards failure today? What are some of the things that you do to keep yourself failing? 
in order to succeed? Well, curiosity. I mean, I try, I try as much as I can new experiences um, and, and challenge myself. And I think, you know, rituals are a big part of my life. Um, practices and ceremonies, you know, whether it be Eastern rituals, Western rituals, uh, spiritual rituals, uh, how I move through the day and, and, and getting that patent habitualized routinization of, of a ritual and how I move through the world is important and further extending my presence in the world. But at the same time, I think it's important to mix it up occasionally because we get stagnant, we get stale. I mean, you know, we talk about left and right brain hemisphere and the left brain hemisphere wants to close down to certainties and probabilities and wants consistency and answers and routinization. And the right brain hemisphere wants to open up to possibilities is analogous that needs adventure and needs that sense of newness. So how do we find that balance? And I think it's continual yin and yang and rupture and repair and to and fro and, and, and taking some of the lessons from the great lessons from uh, history um, and, and then kind of turning them on their head and, and questioning the commonly held beliefs, challenging those uh, preconceptions um, to, you know, phenomenologically experience the world a little more in terms of the experiential. I mean, I have, I have to say to people, you know, what's the, who's, who's the, who knows more about basketball? Maybe it's a question for you. Who knows more about basketball? Um, Phil Jackson or Michael Jordan? So Phil Jackson, philosophically, technically brilliant master of the game. Michael Jordan, brilliant player of the game. I'm going to go with Michael Jordan every time because he's got the experience. So someone can teach all they want, but unless you've actually been on the playing field and taken part in the game at a high level, you're never really going to know what it feels like. So, so these rituals that you, that you just mentioned, what, what's an example of, of a ritual that, that you participate in? Well, if I'm, uh, if I wake up, um, when I wake up, not if I wake up. <laughs> I was going to say, we're happy to have you. <laughs> Is it right? If I wake up at a certain time. No, one might be, um, you know, going to the beach in the morning and finding my little slice of beach very early, uh, walking out on the, uh, the jetty, the rock jetty, and uh, practicing Qigong or moving meditation at the end of that, and um, going through my brocades and stretching exercises and breathing exercises that are part of Qigong. And then I might... Um, enter the ocean and what I call the welcoming the waves ritual. So I'll walk into the ocean and if the waves are crashing. I'll face the waves head on, arms out, and I'll take the knocks and the licks that nature, which is so indifferent, has to offer me. Because if I can deal with that, I can deal with anything on land when I get back in from there. And that is, that's invigorating. It's cold water. It's like a kind of steady plunge, if you will, to kind of test my resolve and my nerve. And, um, and there's some danger, a little bit of danger there because there's no one else around and the current's strong and who knows what the creatures are in the, in the ocean. Um, yeah, I think it's cool too, though. You know, when you talk about rituals, you, I talk a lot about activating your physical in order to activate your psychological, you mm. know, doing that. I mean, put you, put you right in it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the, how do you act? Well, how do you activate? I mean, you know, 
active play, I think, you know, for me, when I, when I, when I tried to break down one time, my approach to acting and performance art, if you will. And I broke it down on what I call the ABCs uh, of what I call the live coaching. So A is the art and that's practicing, activating creative flow states. And fl by flow states, I mean how to let go so the imagination can effortlessly take over during performance. And then the B is the business. So in my instance is the business of show, uh, how to innovate a personalized roadmap that empowers the artist to um, perpetually exceed limitations, to break through uh, limits, uh, innovate through those limits that we meet and elevate career trajectory exponentially. And the C is craft, the craft in process, um, practicing techniques that motivate the artist toward confident more confident mastery of their creative process. I don't think we can ever become a master. Anyone who says there is, they are a master, like someone who says they're a genius, they're not a genius and they're not a master. Because the more I learn and the more I get to know, the more I realize I don't know and I don't know what I don't know. So I'm gonna keep moving into failing and learning through my first attempts. I like that. That's, re that's very cool. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't heard it broke down like that. Very nice. So for you, you know, what, what is your main thing? Would you say is acting your main thing? I know you, you wrote the book, uh, The Respondent. What, what is filmmaking? What, what is your main thing? Or do you feel it's important not to look at anything as a main thing? It's just what I'm doing right now. The last would be, the latter would be the answer. Yeah. I don't have a main, whatever, I'm, like right now, my main thing is doing a podcast with you. So that's my focus and that's where it, it, it lies. But um, yeah, I think it's important to keep innovating newness and curiosity and um, keeping that interest in whatever, you know, wherever you're led. Um, yeah. I love, I love that. Innovating newness. I take, I take a lot of notes as people speak because it helps me to uh, absorb the content. I, I'm a lot like you. I like to always be learning and then take the uh, lessons that others share and then apply them into life and say, yeah, that's cool. I, I, I remember the ABCs. How can I apply that to life? And that's, you know, for me, doing this podcast and doing the show is really to give people tactical tools that they could use and apply to enhancing their own performance in life and, and enhancing their own life experience. Hmm. So, so this, is, this, is great, this is great stuff. What was it like for you writing your book? Was that, did you find that to be, uh, what, what was the experience like? very painful and extremely rewarding. Mm. I mean, it's not a book where people read and they go, Oh, I really enjoyed your book. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it was, I mean, I didn't want to write the book. Um, I had to write the book. Mm. I didn't really have a choice. Um, so, and by that, I mean, it was, um, a sense making exercise, uh, sense-making therapy, recovery. Um, yeah, it, it, it was, I wrote it for many reasons, really. Yeah. So for Greg, that for people that don't know your story, somebody may say, well, what was he recovering? What was he recovering from? <laughs> so in a, you know, a quick snapshot, and again, they'll read the book to get more information, but you know, what, what was the, the re what were you recovering from? Well, I was living a, a I had, 
lived a great life and was, uh, you know, I was in, living in a great neighborhood in LA and my two young sons were in a great private school. I was in a country club and you know, life was, my career was going great. And then suddenly out of the blue, after 20 years of marriage and never an issue, never a problem. Um, one day, March 5th, 2015, in the span of eight hours, I was ushered from my home in handcuffs, um, incarcerated, first of five incarcerations, uh, subject to a temporary restraining order uh, in divorce court on the basis of a false allegation, uh, became homeless and almost destitute overnight. And um, my sons lost their father for half their childhoods and they were the meaning of my life. Like I lived and breathed for my boys and they spent all their time with me. I was that connected, um, involved dad who, you know, I cut their umbilical cords. I uh, changed their diapers. I took them to the pediatrician. I was the volunteer at school. I was their first coaches and all of their volunteer extracurricular activities. So, um, that happened to me and I, and I called it, you know, the book is called the respondent exposing the cartel of family law. The cartel of family law basically showed up on my doorstep and stole my freedom and kidnapped my children and, and, and in effect destroyed my family. And what I found out through my odyssey through the system, uh, kind of Kafkaesque odyssey, which it really was, is that hundreds of thousands of people have been suffering through the system and are still, you know, stuck in it. And um, I discovered that the judges and attorneys and state bar associations, the mediators, psychologists, none of them want their dirty little secret to get out, which is that this is a nearly, now it's nearly a $100 billion a year. I call it the American divorce machine. And it's the only branch of our legal system where there's no presumption of innocence. And that means that murderers, rapists, um, terrorists, pedophiles all get more legal rights than law abiding parents and spouses. So um, I started writing the book and starting a movement and um, yeah, that's really was the genesis for, for why I got involved in this, uh, this particular area. Yeah. So that, I'm guessing that's a big part of where your energy goes now. Yeah. On a daily basis, I'm, I'm working towards furthering the movement and speaking with people who, um, you know, are, are suffering through the system and can't get relief and doing my best to kind of spread the word and, uh, um, yeah, creating media projects for that. Uh, we're about to go into production on a, a doc series for it. And really just exposing these people who've, who've had it way too easy wow. for way too long. It's, it's really abhorrent when you think about it, that people are just putting profits over parents and cash over kids. And, you know, when you look at the fact that 6,000 children, 4,000 children lose a parent every day in family law courts across America, that's 4,000 children. And the states get reimbursed $6,000 for every child that's placed into foster care. And there's more stats and details as well. I mean, we, we, we basically have a system of legalized child trafficking in America. And it stuns me that it's not spoken about. But at the same time, it doesn't surprise me because there's people in very high places who are making a ton of money from child trafficking legally. That's amazing. No, I've been following some of your some of your work, and I, you know, for me, I always wanted to talk to you about what's, you know, what what's driving it and what keeps you going every day. What what's the motivation? And I'm guessing, you know, it's that one person that you can help deal with their situation and inspire others uh, along the way as well, right? 
yeah, I mean, I get, I get so many messages a day and, you know, occasionally I get to speak to people one-on-one. I mean, like, for example, there was, I got an email through from a father who hadn't seen his son in 14 years. He'd been alienated and lost him through the court system through no fault of his own. And the email said, I'll never be able to thank you enough. And below it, it said, um, I hadn't heard from my son in 14 years. He just sent me this email below. Thank you. I'll never be able to thank you enough. And the email from his son was from his son who said, I just, you know, read and heard about Greg Ellis's story. This is your story. I got it. I was so wrong. Will you be my father again? Your son. And, and he now has a connection with his son that, um, and his son has reunited with his father because they're the true innocence. The, The children are the true, true innocence of, of, uh, of the family law system. And, um, you know, all statistics show that it's the safest place for a child is, and the best place for a child is with their biological parents. And when we have a system that's breaking them up, then, so yeah, it's, it's extremely rewarding, but in a very different way. Um, you know, I used to walk down red carpets and now I want to walk up the steps of legislature, uh, and, and state, um, you know, buildings to give testimony. When we first started talking, I believe you said that one of the, the paths that you potentially were going to take was a legal path. Did you say that that you wanted like law, like yeah, I, yeah, I, that was a, that was something that I had thought about doing when I was when I was you know, but you know that takes the legal system is so um, it's <laughs> you have to go to law school for many years for a reason. That's a lot of work, and I wasn't afforded the opportunity to go to law school. And frankly, my talents aren't sitting down and writing legal arguments and you know i'm much more comfortable as an orator than i am as a um uh, writing uh papers and motions and declarations yeah yeah but you know what i think all of your life experiences probably make you the man for the job to do what you're doing now yeah i think i i think one of the reasons why there hasn't been much movement in this this area is because there's been a lot of smaller siloed movements and organizations and people and and it's very difficult so difficult to get um to get uh on mainstream media discussing the subject i mean look i've i'm a heterosexual caucasian middle-aged actor from hollywood yeah, who cares? They'd be like, oh, who cares? Who cares? You know, if I were a kind of, you know, a different sex and um, maybe I would be invited on. And, you know, I I speak on behalf of families and, you know, um, fam- and parents and mothers and fathers and children um, and, you know, there's so many men who are stuck in this system that I predominantly speak about the issues of fatherhood um, and dead broke dads, not just dead beat dads and black child support, not just back child support. And the way the system um, is set up to, uh, to basically bankrupt um, minority men. Um, but that, you know, isn't good enough for some because I'm not, uh, I'm not drinking enough Coca-Cola and I'm not, I'm not diverse enough, um, but I don't, I don't particularly care when I get attacked. It just means that I'm doing something right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everybody wants to attack people that are standing for something today. Right. Oh yeah. You know, the offense Olympics. Yeah. You put yourself out there and this is what you believe. And 
you know what, it's again, it's that one father that you help and that one family that you help put back together that, that keeps you going. So, but this is, this is great. I, you know, what's interesting and, and I'm sure you know this, but there's this like thread that goes through the middle of your story and, you know, that competitor that always trying to do, do your best. It, it shows even with what you're doing now. You know, I mean, you could easily take the road where it's like, Hey, I'm just going to go do my Hollywood thing. And I'm going to turn a, a blind eye to all this. And, you know, I'll make my money. I'll live my life and pop bop, bop. But you've actually said, Hey, I'm going to go and I'm going to focus. I'm passionate about this. This affected me and I'm going to build awareness around this. And that takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of guts. And, and that, that for me, that that's the champion in you. Wow. Thank you. I, you know, it, I think about, I think the, about the people, um, I think about the fathers who are no longer with us, who wrote suicide notes because they can't contend with the, I call it suicide by living grief. You know, there is, we talk about rituals. There's a, you know, if someone dies, we get to say goodbye. We get to sign a book. We get to go and give a eulogy. We, we ritualize and have a ceremony for them. But so many parents have been removed from their children and children from their parents that it can be unbearable. It's, it can be an inescapable uh, unrelenting trauma, complex, big T, not just little T trauma. So, and, and many people don't have support, um, financial support or, um, you know, therapy or, uh, friends, you know, people feel so alone. I think everyone's struggling with something and many people are living lives of quiet desperation. So the amount of times that I've, I've seen messages with people just saying, thank you. I was, I mean, I've had some that I was going to end my life because I thought I was living, you know, in this authoritarian maze that I was trapped in. I could never escape, but there's someone else. And your story let me know that I wasn't alone. And I think that alone, I think we have to score some victories for you. I mean, who was it who said, be afraid to die until you scored some victories for humanity. And I think many times we can go through life, I don't unconscious to a degree, thinking about me, 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 what can I get? What can I get? What awards can I get? What trophies can I win? What accolades can I receive? What recognition can I get in the newspaper? Um, how will people perceive me? Am I a quote unquote seen as a champion? Well, there are so many local heroes. And I think when we can, when we can at least start to shift around to what can I give rather than what can I get? And maybe that comes later in life. I don't know. I, I got to that point. And that's kind of where I'm trying to live right now. And I think the survivor instinct in me, which may have come from never quitting when I was a kid. I mean, some of my greatest sporting triumphs were not when I won five nil or not when we won at basketball 72 to 36. It was, it was when we were up against the team we were told we had no chance against or when we were three nil down with 10 minutes to play and that deep belief and making others around you believe that you can not only survive, we can come back and we can be victorious. And even if you come back to 3-2 and you still lose, or you get to 3-3 and it's a draw, like that is real triumph. And I think that instills that self-confidence where you, 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 through experience, you realize, you know what? I'm not a quitter, never say. And also staying in the moment, staying in the now moment. I have a friend who used to play tennis professionally and I was doing a show in London and he's won seven, I think 17 grand slams. His first was a, a doubles title with John McEnroe back in the day. And I, I remember the first time I watched him play and he was playing the great Ivan Lendl or Ivan Lendl. 
in the quarterfinals at Wimbledon and he had three match points and he lost them all. Now, I didn't ask him straight away after the match because I'd go to Wimbledon with him every year and watch him. But down the line, a couple of years later, I asked him about that match. I said, what happened? And he said, I'd already won the game in my mind. I said, what do you mean? He said, when we changed round and I was serving for the match and I had match point, I was already in the press conference. I was already thinking about who I was going to play in the next round. I was already projecting into the, and then before I knew it, I'd lost one match point. And then I was still thinking, well, I've got two more and, and I was comfortable rather than thinking like a golf, like a great golfer does stroke by stroke, like a great baseball player. I would imagine, even though I'm not a baseball player on the mound, each pitch is its own pitch. Yes. You're aware. I think to some degree, you have to be aware of the pitch count, but really at the end of the day, that pitch comes in and you are treating it like you, you, you're not thinking, I guess, if the bases are loaded and you hit a home run and it's the what bottom of the ninth, I think is what you call it. And you're going to win the world series. You're not thinking, oh my God, we're going to win the world series and the team's going to love me. And I'm going to be, you're just in that zone thinking about that. And that's training and experience, I think. Yeah. And belief. And that's where it all shows up. Right. If, if you trained properly and you have the experience and you've prepared, you know, in those moments, you'll you'll be ready. But, you know, even then, you know, there's always that that's something that could shoot in and take your take your uh, distract you. You know, we've seen it happen to the greats uh, in, in many different sports. But I, let, I have one question I always end the show with. And I ask this, you know, I call it the becoming a champion show. We're all on a journey to become a champion, become our champion self. What does the word champion mean to you? Well, there's many things I could say. You mentioned becoming a champion. I think becoming is a very interesting word. I think we are all always becoming. I once asked people what singular word they would use to describe God. And in that moment, I said becoming. Um, I think about my charity, CPU, Children and Parents United. And I, I talk about the A-team of family champions. Um. I think a champion can be, you know, a pinnacle um, that's driven for and attained. Um, and it can also be um, about belief and who believes in you, um, whether you believe in yourself, whether you're your own champion, what's your own inner dialogue and on, in a monologue, um, success. Um, I like actually what you said right there about the, you know, the inner dialogue and monologue, because that, that I find is what will make you or break you in many ways. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you talk of champions, I, I, I have a feeling that the greatest champions, the greatest sports, let's say sports champions don't believe that they're champions once they win a championship that I think there's probably a sense of relief, um, that they have finally got that, what, what they strove for all those years. But I think it, when we talk about a true champion, does that indicate there's a false champion, but, um, a, a multi championship winning athlete will not rest on their laurels, will not become arrogant, will not become, um, will lead by example. Like I would imagine that Tom Brady isn't the last person into training every day. 
You know, I would imagine that each year comes around, he doesn't think, well, I've won four rings now, so I don't have to work as hard. I would imagine that th that level of pushing oneself in the capital S, in the inner monologue, is is about being number one, like in my business, number one on the call sheet, whoever is the star of a TV show. They need to lead by example. And sometimes they need to motivate. And sometimes there needs to be tough love. And sometimes they need to turn it on themselves and be publicly apologetic to the crew within the privacy of the, the environment. And sometimes they just need to motivate. But most of the time, it's through their actions and behavior, not through their words, that the example is set. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's well, that's well said. Very cool. You know, as I, uh, you talk about that, ch the champion, you know, that it's not the moment in which they're crowned. I look at it, and from talking to many of them, they see themselves as champions right from the start. That moment is just a moment that reinforces what they believed all along. That's right. You know, so that's exactly right. Yeah, this this was very cool. Well, I'm I'm uh, I'm excited. We got a chance to connect and talk about many different things from how you grew up to your career to what you're doing now and how to apply passion and belief into everything that you do. So this was this was super cool. I'm I'm uh, I'm thrilled we had a chance to to spend some Me time. too, Dana. Me yeah. too.